Sometimes our commander-in-chief, ideally upholder of the law, fails to inspire us. Take the 1970s. Well, I'm not a crook. Or the 90s. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. And now the 21st century. I'm an extremely stable genius. You're about to hear two attorneys make sense out of a legal system some say is a train wreck. Here are Royal Oaks and Connor Oaks. This is Too Many Lawyers. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And I'm Connor Oaks. And we are going to tackle three big topics uh, today, Connor. Uh, first, a tale of two verdicts. Uh, did the Rittenhouse and Arbery juries both get it right? A huge sigh of national relief. Great exhalation on that. Uh, or maybe not so much. We're also going to talk about uh, how to read the abortion tea leaves. So our, our podcast here is going to be dropping this Wednesday, December 1. And that's the day the U.S. Supreme Court will hear oral argument. The very day. Yeah, on the Mississippi Supreme Court uh, abortion case. So we'll uh, obviously be able to read some tea leaves a little better after we hear the hearing. But uh, there is a lot of evidence that we can talk about as to which direction the court might go. And finally, are opiates a public nuisance or not? We'll get into all three of those topics. And in our Guess the Verdict game, at the conclusion of the episode, Connor will be confronted Uh with the world's most dangerous vending machine. So you got to stick around for that. Connor's going to try to guess the verdict and maintain his high batting average. Before we get to uh, the tale of two verdicts, though, you know, Connor, I like the Guinness Book of World Records as much as the next guy. Oh, it's great. Yeah, but I saw an item in the Wall Street Journal that was a little bit scary. Uh, there's a LASIK eye clinic where they do surgery on your eyes and yeah, it's gross. so you can see and so on. Yeah, but it's worth it. So you can actually see what's going on. Um, there's allegedly, um, some undue pressure on doctors to work really, really fast hmm. as they're doing the LASIK eye surgery, um, That's procedures to me, it doesn't sound good. Um, the article says that uh, Dr. Albin, he was okay with doing 28 patients a day. Then they pushed him to do 40 or 50 uh, early in the morning to 9 p.m. Uh, Low-budget uh, procedures, 250 bucks per eye. You can pay up to $3,000 God. at a high-end clinic, what, probably a massage. What's the, yeah, what, I, I, you're your eye either massaged. getting your eyes lazed or not. Mm-hmm. I don't understand. What's yeah, the difference? I don't know. They get goldfish in the uh, waiting room. It's almost like gating healthcare by t- Tears based on uh, wealth <laughs> of individuals doesn't make any sense. And healthcare is basically a fungible good that everyone should have equal access to. But but I don't know. May go. On. I'm just. I don't know. I'm just. Spat. I don't know what I'm saying. Over well, here. there's nothing just, fungible about having your eyes cut. Oh, I mean, that's true. Nothing fun about that's that. True. That's true. Uh, so here's the lawsuit. Counter filed in Maryland says this company pressured the staff to join the 100 Eye Club. 100 Eyes in a day. Now. How would you like to be the guy whose eye number, I don't know, 98, 99, yeah. and Hopefully the time is running and 99. out? Yeah, the clock on the wall is telling the guy he has to go home. And I, I just, he's running out of time. Would yeah. you want to be that patient? Would no. you want to be patient 99? No, I don't think I would. Well, remember, it's 99 eyes. So that's only 50 patients. Yeah. Unless well, that's you've much got better. 99 pirates. <laughs> if you've got 100 pirates in your waiting room and you got to bang them all, that adds a lot of time. That should be its own separate record. This reminds me of a very scary memory I have from watching TV. I want to say in the 70s or 80s, the show I think was called They had TV then? Yeah, yeah, they did. But the test pattern came on at 11 p.m. And so then you were done after the Indian head. Um, 
So here's the deal. Back in the 70s, the show called That's Incredible had all sorts of amazing human interest stuff. And one of the things that they had, I think John Davidson, the uh, handsome singer, was the host. The world's fastest shaver, barber shaver. You go, oh. you know, some fancy barber shops, they'll actually yeah. shave you. Oh, yeah. This guy built himself as the world's fastest. No, thank you. And you know what? Um, he lined up like 25 guys that needed a shave up on the stage and... The host clicked the stopwatch, and this guy was just going to town really fast. And he had to finish up like, you know, 14 in, in three minutes or whatever. And only three died. Well, that's just it. Can you imagine? How, I mean, th- for a while, they... I they can used, imagine it vividly. They used balloons, and he would shave the shaving cream off the balloons, but it's that not, wasn't enough for the... It's not. There's you know. no blood. We want the potential. You blood. want blood. Not not good. I'm, I'm we gl- watch NASCAR for the crashes. We I'm, watch this guy shave for the blood. I'm glad the show's off the air now. All right, let's get to topic number one, uh, Rittenhouse and Arbery. Um, so was the jury system on trial, and did they get it right, I guess, is a big question. There was a lot of concern that the Rittenhouse jury would vote guilty out of a fear of riots, and that did not happen. It was not guilty across the board. There was a lot of concern that a nearly all-white Georgia jury would buy the Arbery defense, the, well, this fellow was uh, running, and gosh, he might have been burglarizing homes, and his face appeared on surveillance cameras, so we just cornered him and killed him, and that's that. Can we go now? But that didn't happen. The jury convicted these guys, and the sentencing has not occurred, but the betting is that they're never going to see freedom again. So uh, seems like a lot of folks were kind of happy with both verdicts. Are we happy with the verdicts and with the state of the jury system itself right now? That's a good question. I think the que- asking this question broadly about the jury system is sort of double-edged. Uh, my uh, former professor and uh, a very astute commentator, uh, a fellow legal commentator, it's funny to put ourselves on on a professor's level, uh, but, you know, you, of course, are a, a legal commentator. Yeah, he can profess all he wants. Okay, I pretend, that's what I got I play one on a podcast, but— but he uh, he made made a couple of really good points in talking about uh, this case, and in fact about both of these cases over the last few weeks, and about how there's a limited, really limited capacity for the criminal justice or criminal legal system to effect change in our society. Mm-hmm. It's not what it's there for. When we look at these cases and we say, "Oh, does Ahmad Arbery's uh, uh, vindication in a murder trial?" Uh, Solve crime, solve Mm -hmm. murder, solve racism. Does it even solve the murder of Ahmaud Arbery, the one black guy who suffered in this case? No. Then how is it supposed to solve the whole universe of racism and problems in this country? Nor is Kyle Rittenhouse's verdict, guilty or innocent, going to solve or did it solve these problems? Because that's not what the criminal legal system is there for. It's there to punish individuals for their roles, according to the laws as they existed at the time of the crimes. I mean, this is a good example. Rittenhouse was exonerated on the illegal uh, carrying a a gun while underage charge because his gun was too large to fit within the statute that said 17-year-olds aren't allowed to carry this kind of gun. Short-barreled rifle. Yeah, from this rifle length to this rifle length. A lot of people would say that's a silly rule. Other people would say, well, it's about how well you can conceal a hunting weapon versus how well you can conceal a dangerous, more dangerous, therefore short-barreled weapon. Other people would say, maybe we just shouldn't have 17-year-olds having those kinds of weapons at all or whatever else. 
is the criminal legal system the right vehicle for affecting that change? Well, maybe the public looks at a trial, doesn't like the outcome, and says, we won't stand for it. Something's got to go. Something's got to change. Right. But how often does that really happen? Well, when in the high-profile context, it, I guess it happens a lot because people get really wrapped up in these cases. And, and the big question that everybody, uh, once again, was talking about because of Rittenhouse and Arbery is— should a specific individual court case be a referendum on some sort of social mm. justice issue? And, and yeah. I think most people came to the conclusion, no, it's a bad idea. You look at the specific facts of a case, the specific law that governs, and the jury should, as if they were robots, make the decision based on the facts and the law in that case, not yeah. on what's outside the courthouse. I, I may have mentioned in last week's episode, but uh, I don't remember exactly, that I had an opportunity to interview Alan Dershowitz, the famous Harvard uh, constitutional and criminal law professor, uh, on KBC a week or so ago after mm. the Rittenhouse verdict. It was I was filling in for Leo 2.0, and it's interesting on KBC radio, they play a couple of sound cuts of Donald Trump leaving a voicemail about Leo on somebody's message. I think it's either Leo's wow. or Sean Hannity's. And sure. I mean, the president is slobbering all over Leo. And there's a comment about how Trump is Leo's favorite president. Mm. And they play this most every show. I felt the duty bound to mention that I thought that was inaccurate because I know Leo and I believe William Henry Harrison was his favorite president. <laughs> So, uh -huh. so that's a, that's a, a big lie right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But setting that aside, I, I was talking to Dershowitz about an article he wrote in the Hill magazine or website. And what he said was, doggone it, you shouldn't try to solve a social justice problem in a specific case. You know, he's been representing criminal defendants for years. Right. You should just focus on the case. And I said to him. Gee, Professor Dershowitz, didn't Johnny Cochran put the LAPD on trial in his final argument in the O.J. Simpson murder case and basically talk about racism in society and you all have to send a message to stop terrible police everywhere? Yeah. Doesn't that go against what you just wrote about the Rittenhouse case? And yeah. he said, oh, yeah, Johnny was wrong to do that. He shouldn't yeah. have played the, uh, the uh, race card. So I don't know. If maybe he's changed his mind. Maybe he hasn't. But I think the bottom line is that most people feel it's good. I mean, picture yourself on trial. Would you really want a jury to be deciding not based on the facts of whether you're guilty, but on their desire to solve a social problem? Well, remember that the 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 individuals on trial can use these strategies, whichever strategies they feel uh, make clear to the jury. Uh, the reality of the situation that they're faced with. Right. The broader question of whether a jury verdict, whichever way it comes down, will end up achieving some goal like solving LAPD's racist policing problem. Uh, that's the question that that you know we're faced with in the in the aftermath of these two high profile cases. But the idea of whether oh a criminal defendant should talk about the reality that they are faced with, which is the cops are racist. Uh, that, to me, is a slam dunk, obvious, straightforward, easy. Obviously, the defendant should uh, be allowed to and should talk about this topic because it's real. He's faced For with example, it. if Mark Furman is shown to be a racist yeah. because of the tapes of his meeting with a screenwriter in North Carolina, yeah, and absolutely. he used the N-word a hundred times, and he said uh, hor horrific uh, yeah. things. So it's pretty silly. So, and he's the guy that found the bloody glove. Yeah, and it, so yeah. it's okay— uh, arguably for Johnny Cochran to really 
ram that down. Yeah. And for people to say that's the playing the race throat. card, it's like it's. But playing he did the race, go beyond that. He talked, evidence. he talked about generalized racism in society. How is that different, though? How well, is it different to say Mark Furman is a racist and have the jury go, "Whoa, you're saying ram some random guys"? Ge- if racist. generalized racism society did not result in the framing of O.J. Simpson, then why should he be allowed to argue it? Well, or the jury shouldn't pay attention to a it. A jury's got to know about systemic racism throughout an entire police force before they will accept the reality that Mark Furman was a racist. That is the theory. The idea that the facts in this case are predicated on a a bedrock of of massive knowledge about the way the system works. And the jury has to be told, you guys know how the system works. Here it is. You break break it all down before you make it explicit. Now let's talk about about the facts in this case. Now, if you're arguing from absolutely no evidence— that's a different a different uh, case entirely. But playing the race card is often thrown around at people who are explaining the evidence, not arguing from no evidence. And in, uh, I think OJ's case is a, is a great example of the, he was arguing for the evidence. Now, do I think OJ was guilty? Yeah, <laughs> but that doesn't. That's not the issue. Well, I'm that's not going to dump on Johnny Cochran anymore because the poor guy's dead. So let's, yeah. we'll just let him rest in Absolutely. peace. When we come back, we're going to talk about whether or not there are some lessons about cameras in the courtroom arising out of the Rittenhouse and Arbor trials. But first, Connor's going to explain to you how you can rate and subscribe to Too Many Lawyers. Yeah, check us out on uh, whichever podcast platform is your uh, vehicle of choice for getting these pods. Uh, That's probably Apple Podcasts, in which case the button says join for some reason. Who knows? But uh, Podcast Addict is a popular one on uh, on, uh, Android. Also, Spotify, massively popular platform. Check us out. Subscribe, follow, join, whatever the button says. And leave us a review, too, because we love reading those. What's that expression? It's uh, as American as Apple Podcast. Isn't that the common expression? that's it. Something like that. We'll be right back. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And I'm Connor Oaks. So we're talking about the Rittenhouse and Arbery trials, and specifically now whether uh, it gave a big boost to uh, cameras in the courtroom. We know that since we talked about the O.J. trial, ever since the O.J. murder trial, it's been difficult to get cameras approved in high-profile cases. But both of those cases had wall-to-wall coverage uh, up in Wisconsin and then down in in uh, Georgia, but that's because those were in state court. And uh, for example, Ms. Maxwell, the woman who allegedly arranged Jeffrey Epstein's uh, encounters with minor uh, women, uh, she's in federal court and her trial kicked off today and federal court does not allow cameras at all, ever, except in pilot programs occasionally. And the appellate level, Ninth Circuit, for example, regularly will allow televising of the arguments of the Supreme Court, on the other hand, in the United States Supreme Court in Washington, no, they do not like it. So I think the Rittenhouse trial was a persuasive argument for cameras. They, they've gotten such a bad rap, uh, but a camera lets the entire nation, the entire world, see a high-profile trial. I don't think it scares off witnesses. I don't think it changes their testimony. And if it inspires attorney soapboxing, a la you know, Marsha Clark, Johnny Cochran, and so on, right. that's why the judge has a gavel True. to hit them over the head with that. Uh, you think that uh, the notion of cameras in the courtroom has been given a boost by these uh, recent high-profile cases? Yeah, I think every time you see a uh, a trial, criminal trial on TV, and you see the um, the intricacies of it and the back and forth between the judges and the lawyers, and you see the witnesses uh, you know, give their testimony in full instead of just getting some still cartoon of, of them um, 
you know, snapshot of their face as they're on trial and the headline says something like pointless testimony from idiot who we don't care about uh, and, and you, your eyes glaze over. I definitely think there's more impact. De- uh, I, no doubt. I think that that people like seeing that and people really like feeling that they, like there's access to the system. And, you know, a lot of people were unhappy with the Rittenhouse verdict. Uh, a lot of people were happy with the Arbery verdict. I'm sure there were people who were, you know, the flip side. of. I know there were people on the flip side of the Rittenhouse verdict. I don't know if there was anybody who was too unhappy about the Arbery verdict. But the uh, the access that the public gets to the inside of the courtroom, I think, makes people feel good that the system works and that the system is working. And I think it can be an unfortunate lead to an unfortunate fatalism where they say, oh, well, this is just how it is and this is how the system goes and uh, it must be good because it's the way we've done it. And so I think it can lead to a little bit of complacency and fatalism about, well, you know, we watched the whole thing and they went through the whole thing and it was very, very thorough. Well, it offers it, it, it's a double edged sword. It offers people the, the, the information to be able to make you know, incisive criticism and say, oh, the judge shouldn't have said this at this point. The prosecutor should not have said that at this point. Uh, the defense lawyer screwed up. Uh, their strategy at that point. Uh, I didn't believe the the witness the way the jury believed the witness. Whatever else, that those can be criticisms of uh, the the facts of the case and how the case was presented, or it can be criticisms of how the whole system works. People watched the Rittenhouse trial and felt like, wow, this guy's getting every break in the book right. from this judge. And then other people said, uh, watched the, the the trial and said, well, actually, you know, he, he the judge excoriated his. Uh, the, the the prosecutor in this team, and that can be painful. Sure, uh, but uh, you know that uh, he he also said some 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 mean, mean rude things to the other side. So you know it gives people um, uh, such an, an in depth view. It's an information overload, but that's because that it's an information overload to the, the average random person. I think it it does provide commentators useful info uh, to be able to highlight the dangerous parts of the system and say, oh, look, this is where it goes wrong. This is where it breaks down. This is where you can't trust it or or uh, go along with it. And we need to change something. And I, I think that is good. I think that's, um, that, that's a very valuable resource. I think that's the difference between C-SPAN, you know, and uh, 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 the circus. The danger of cameras in the No, the difference between C-SPAN and the circus is that 14 people watch C-SPAN right. and 14 million watch the yeah, circus. Yeah, clowns all either way, though. But yeah, the, the, <laughs> the, uh, the, the danger of cameras in the courtroom is, because, is not that they will uh, be correctly used and people will interpret them badly. It's that, that people will willfully misinterpret what, they, what, what the video shows. Uh, that nothing is is yeah, but you know, what about the expression? Of, who are you going to believe, me or your lying eyes? Well, that's that's the thing is is when somebody gets up there and says, "Ah, uh, this is what I think about the criminal legal system and or criminal justice system," and you can either take their word for it or not. But if they back their argument up with video evidence that they spin in a in a in a specific way, it makes it seem really credible in a way that it might not really be credible because the criminal justice system is not an open book to the viewer. Well, but fortunately, so you've got the adversary system so that yes. whether it's a Rodney King beating tape yes. or it's a Rittenhouse, you know, I'm running yeah. through Kenosha yeah. tape. Yeah. Who, people and, are free to draw inferences and the lawyers are free to make persuasive arguments oh, saying, yeah. oh, it means this. But no, it means that. That's video evidence. I mean video of the trial. And that's, you know, oh, okay. talking about cameras in the courtroom. You need an expert to interpret what happens 
in a courtroom. You need someone to say, the judge said X, Y, Z, and that means A, B, C, and he did it for this reason, and he's allowed to do it because of this, or he's not allowed to do it this, or he should have done it, or he shouldn't, and it's normal, or it isn't. The average viewer walks, watches a trial, their eyes roll back in their head, they glaze over, they go, what the hell is going on? I don't know what these people are saying. I don't know what this evidence means. I don't know what I'm allowed to consider. It's a problem point. because if they have that reaction, the jury will too, probably. Absolutely. But in the ju- the jurors have the lawyers and the judge that they're specifically listening to and getting instructions about their job. Right. There's no job of the guy watching MSNBC or C-SPAN or coverage of it or whatever. Except they don't picking have... the Cheetos out from under the sofa cushions. Yeah, he does have that. It's a true good point. But they, they, they need experts. You, basically, and you know Jody Armour and Alan Dershowitz or whoever else right. uh, <clears throat> to interpret this information. And the problem is that because you need an expert stand in the middle to explain what the heck is going on on the screen in there, uh, because it's such an arcane I- I- legal process, uh, the, the danger I- is that it could be misinterpreted. But the, thankfully, the American people have royal forest oaks to do that interpretation. Thank so there's goodness. no real danger at all. Thank goodness. All right, let's talk about topic two, abortion. Uh, Mississippi abortion law is uh, before the U.S. Supreme Court. The argument is uh, this Wednesday, December 1. Uh, let's talk about the uh, the timeline of this Mississippi issue. It was in 2018, just three years ago, the governor there signed into law a bill banning abortion after 15 weeks. It was the only abortion clinic in Mississippi. Uh, they sued and they said, hey, this violates Roe versus Wade, which it does. A federal district court blocked enforcement of the law. Crucially, this this 15 week uh, ban in what was called the Gestational Age Act. It has no exceptions whatsoever for rape or incest, which are the classic two examples of exceptions where somebody says, "Okay, this person is past the 15 week period. Mm -hmm. But because the the pregnancy is a result of rape or incest, we're going to change that number uh, to allow them to get this abortion. This law has none of that. It just says hard cut off 15 weeks, period. That's it. And that's very different than the precedent of Roe v. Wade, which is generally accepted to be 24 weeks. Right. So the federal trial court blocked the enforcement of the law. Then the appellate court, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is generally pretty conservative, affirmed that decision, striking down the law because it violated Roe versus Wade. Right. Okay, that's to be expected. It's happened several times in Texas and Louisiana in recent years. But right. then, last summer, 2020, Mississippi filed a petition for writ of certiorari to have the case taken up by the U.S. Supreme Court. And what do you know? This year, May 2021, Supreme Court granted cert. So the, the why question, would they do that is right, the question. Why would they do it if, if they weren't just happy with the lower court's right. result? Well, yeah. one issue is kind of an inside baseball deal. The way you get a petition granted by the U.S. Supreme Court is to get four of the nine justices to vote. Now, that means... Whereas people are concerned, oh my gosh, why did they take this up if they weren't going to dump Roe versus Wade? That means only four people may have voted to take this case up. Now, right. if you look at the justices, you've got Clarence Thomas, who is against abortion rights, Sam Alito, ditto probably, Amy Coney Barrett, maybe, let's assume she is based on all the talk about her, and either Gorsuch or Kavanaugh, probably Gorsuch. So that would give you your four. But that leaves five supporting a row, probably. That would be the chief, Roberts, the three liberals, and either Gorsuch or Kavanaugh. So given all that, uh, obviously we don't have the tea leaves to read because we haven't heard the oral argument on Wednesday. But is there any reason to assume doom and gloom that this is the end of Roe just because they took this case up with four, possibly four votes? I wouldn't say there's a reason to assume it, but I would say that 
the four justices who, at least four justices, who ex- who accept a writ of certiorari saying, hey, let's hear this uh, case. Not the ruling on it, but let's hear it. They're not dumb. They don't want to lose. They don't want to bring this case up to the Supreme Court only to have John Roberts, three liberals, and one random conservative to jump ship and follow Roberts uh, to preserve Roe. They are doing this for a reason. Now, you could say maybe they're doing it because they want to keep abortion in the national conversation. They want to excite the Republican base. They want this to be the topic uh, on which the, the the upcoming midterm elections swing or hang because they think uh, that they're, you know, Republican, that, that, that abortion um, in the Supreme Court is is red meat for the Republicans, that they will actually be able to fundraise on that, that they will be able to run candidates who are saying, oh, you know, we're we're going to we, we're not quite there. Uh, we only got six out of the out of the nine justices. But as soon as we get seven, oh, boy, we're really going to you yeah. know beat up on these Democrats and, and we're going to we're going to get rid of Roe. That could be an argument. I don't think it's a good one. I think these four Supreme Court justices think that there is a way for either Gorsuch or Kavanaugh to sign on to some form of weakening of Roe. I don't think that there's any chance. Yeah, and there's the key. I mean, don't you think it's more likely they just want to tinker with yes. the so-called undue burden test? Yes. Because to, to just briefly describe the background. So in 73, Roe versus Wade is handed down, and it says essentially no restrictions on abortion after viability of the fetus, about 24 weeks. Then, 1992, the Casey case replaced the viability test, or just added to it, with an undue burden angle. States may not restrict abortion if the law imposes an undue burden on women. No substantial obstacles in the path of a woman seeking an abortion. So then a bunch of states tested the rule. Hey, let's have uh, ultrasound being required. Let's have a waiting period. Hey, let's get the husband to sign off on hey if it's a minor a mom let's get parental okay hey let's have a really fancy hospital so right perhaps what the minority on the supreme court is hoping is that we can revisit this sort of vague notion of undue burden and perhaps recraft the doctrine in a way that's a little friendlier to the pro-choice forces yeah i think that that's incredibly uh incredibly likely i I wouldn't say that their goal is to make it friendly to pro-choice forces because i think they've got an easy well, over- pro-life force is what I meant. To say. Yeah, they've got yeah. So they've got a big uh, a big majority on the Supreme Court, not just five four, but six three. So they don't like that makes the kingmaker John Roberts uh, swing vote much less powerful. He does not have the power to determine the outcome unless he can recruit one of the conservatives over to his side. He's got to get Gorsuch or Kavanaugh to say, "Hey, respect the precedent of Roe." Don't throw this away. You're brand new justices to the Supreme Court. You don't want to be. You will be seen as the act. I've already defended Roe many times. You will be the one who fails. You will be the one who falls down in your legacy. Your tombstone will say, uh, here lies, you know, Brett Kavanaugh. He was angry about liking beer and he killed Roe v. Wade. That will be your tombstone. Yeah. And so that's the argument that John Roberts has to, to make. And to I, th- I think the tombstone argument, it makes itself. I mean, the Supreme Court does not like to lead the public in a direction that the public does not want to go into. Now, we used to have yeah, laws against true. interracial marriage. Yeah. Every state for centuries, when the public opinion polls showed in the 50s and 60s, that's a crock. Mm-hmm. We don't believe in it. Right. Suddenly, the Supreme Court says, Why, that's illegal. Loving versus Virginia. What a great name, too. Gay marriage. Yeah. For centuries, it's illegal. Right. Okay, basic. And then, when the public opinion polls show, and the, the, the tsunami 
Academy of Support for Gay Marriage hits What Do You Know? Justice Kennedy writes a big pro-gay marriage uh, opinion. Do we Oberge really? Fell versus Hodges. Yeah. Great case. The name does not flow as well as Loving versus no, Virginia. No, it doesn't. I mean, come on. Roe versus Wade flows pretty well. Sure. And I can't imagine it's going to be dumped uh, given how the Supreme Court knows uh, the American public feels about this basic issue. Hey, when we come back, our final topic, public nuisance as a theory to make rich industries, tobacco, opioids, guns, pay for things that... Maybe they don't have any legal responsibility for. Yeah. We'll explore that when we come back. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And I'm Connor Oaks. So we hate big oil. We hate big pharma, big guns, uh, the whole thing. Let's make the rich guys pay. Yay! The uh, Wall Street <laughs> Journal editorial recently praised the rejection by the Oklahoma Supreme Court of right. the nuisance theory. Well, of course the Wall Street Journal. Re- regarding the away. opioid <laughs> crisis. <laughs> Oklahoma jury handed down a $465 million verdict against Johnson & Johnson. How'd you like to be Johnson & Johnson's lawyer that day? Boy, you'd need a drink that evening, wouldn't but you? But you would get to bill a lot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> On the theory, the, this jury had a theory that the opioid pills that were manufactured were a public nuisance, and the judge allowed that uh, through jury instructions. So what the heck's a, a nuisance? As a prior, yeah. So a nuisance is, you know, storing explosives in a dangerous area. Yeah. The slaughterhouse next door really stinks up the town. You're belching smoke, you know, coal, ash, and smoke into the air, and it's falling on my property next Your neighbor collects diseased animal carcasses. All of those things. Incredibly loud music blares at all hours of the night. You're you're, you're throwing something out into the world that harms people around you. Sound waves. Odors, yeah. light. So those are those are nuisances. Window. So now the the big pharma, big guns, big opioids. They say, hey, we're selling legal products. Congress has said it's legal to sell a gun and a, an opioid uh, pain pill. Right. And uh, a cigarette. Yeah. And so in what sense, on what planet should we be held liable yeah. in court for, uh, for a nuisance? You know, it, uh, something can be dangerous when misused, but when it's used for its original intention to get somebody drunk or, or uh, to I- enjoy a cigarette or 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 shoot the gun. Mm-hmm. So who's behind this idea? I mean, does this, this nuisance theory really belong in court? So nuisance as a legal theory is meant to capture the ways in which people uh, send, like the people uh, place what are called externalities on other parties out there in the world. If you are a polluter and you uh, have a certain cost associated with manufacturing widgets in your factory, and one of those the costs of that is getting rid of the waste created by um, by creating widgets, and that waste is you know, radioactive or smells horrible or poisons people or something bad. You could pay a lot of money to turn that waste into something safe. You could pay a lot of money to get it hauled out to the middle of nowhere when nobody's harmed by it, or dig a big hole and stick it in, uh, or whatever. Or instead of paying any money, you could dump it in the river. And if that's legal for whatever reason, because you dump it slowly and away from people or whatever else, uh, then that's an externality to the extent that it does end up harming somebody down the river, down the road in some other way. If you belch coal smoke into the air, people around you go, that's bad. And you go, who cares? It's legal. I can burn stuff on my property. You can burn stuff in your backyard. I'm not complaining about your campfire. Get out of my business. And the nuisance theory says, let's talk about the impact that your externalities can have on other people. So when somebody says it's legal to do this, it's like, yeah, it's legal to buy a really big, bright lamp. 
it's not legal to shine this spotlight lamp into your neighbor's uh, front window or bedroom window and right. keep him up 26 hours a day. That The way that you use a legal product changes it, right? And if you have a product whose only manifestation, only outcome, as you put it out in the world, is an externality, is an unfortunate, uncomfortable outcome. It might be legal to burn a campfire, but if you're burning so much stuff and putting it out in the world in a way such that people are going to breathe it in, it's going to fall on their houses, it's going to kill their crops and animals and, and, and their lungs and everything else, then it's a nuisance. And so when people say, okay, there's no functional difference between a company burning coal in a huge, you know, smokestack and mm -hmm. releasing noxious gases out into the, the world because they're using their legally owned coal in a certain way. In the same way, there's no difference between that and a pharma company who pushes opioids out to doctors, incentivizes them with money and gifts and prestige and, you know, lots of other ways to incentivize people to push opioids hard on people who weren't best served by taking incredibly dangerous addictive drugs that have bad side effects. And then we have an opioid crisis that sweeps America. We're still you know, writhing in its grip. That's just the same as burning coal and spewing noxious fumes out there. Yeah, You're but you can draw a distinction. You can draw a distinction between a, a nuisance theory as opposed to a hey, they pushed drugs they knew were inappropriate. They were just trying to make money. They didn't care if somebody got addicted. How is it different to say, that, hey, they, they burned coal and spread smoke that they knew would cause lung cancer? It's the same thing. They, they can legally own the smoke. They can sure. legally sell the energy they create from burning coal. Uh, but it's about the, the dispersal I agree. If you of know, the external. If you knowingly... Uh, do something that's going to hurt you, people. Even if you don't know that coal smoke gives people lung cancer and you're belching coal smoke into the air and your neighbor sues, it's no defense to say, oh, I'm not a doctor. I don't know anything about coal smoke. You're still killing people and they still will find against you, fine you millions of dollars and say, you got to stop doing that. So it's not about knowledgeability tests. It's not a criminal uh, case against these folks. It's a it's all about money and compensating them for the, the suffering of the American people who suffer under this, this nuisance that the opioids are you know, belching opioids out into the world recklessly. Well, right. But I mean, all coal fired plants are going to have stuff coming out of the smokestacks that unless appropriate steps are taken to reduce pollution and exactly. so on, are and going to so, hurt people. And that's the question. We can have a campfire in our backyard. We can have a coal powered uh, a power plant because we need energy and we have laws about how what are the level of what's the level of emissions you can you can spew. Right. How many uh, billions of tons a year of CO2 can you put in the atmosphere? Right. And if you follow the ash? congressional standards, you shouldn't be sued for a nuisance. But if you exceed the standards, then you should be sued. Exactly. And so for opioids, we don't have the Environmental Protection Agency watching over the opioid producers and saying there's a reasonable amount well we kind of have we, we have doctors belch. being regulated by the medical board right. but we don't have a, a, a them saying in the same way that you can't belch this much coal smoke we don't have anybody saying you can't fat manufacture this many opioid pills you can't uh, uh, incentivize doctors in or in this way or that way to prescribe them. You can't tout your pill as a cure-all to a lot of uh, a lot of things that are really dangerous uh, to take it for it. What we have is we have the medical profession that largely regulates itself, and then we've got the Food and Drug Administration, uh, and that that you know makes sure that the pills themselves aren't dangerous, but. Opioids are dangerous. They're just not more dangerous than other opioid pills. That's so, what the FDA is, con is confirming. So it's a very complicated process to say, you know, is this drug safe for this procedure? 
uh, for this type of person who's in pain and recovering, for this person no, who has addiction right. issues from it's the It's very past. complicated. Uh, a minute ago, you um, said something I want to ask you about. You referred to 26 hours a day. Yeah. I want to know if that was just hyperbole or just a mistake on your part. Uh, great question, sir. Um, I will say that uh, at this point, uh, the experts believe that it was hyperbole, but I, I'm not ruling out the We're idea. We're going with hyperbole. Yeah. I like that. It is time for Guess the Verdict, Connor. Can't wait. America's favorite game show. Are you psyched up for this question? Yes. I'm going to give Connor the facts of a real-life case, and he gets to guess how it turned out in court. Mm -hmm. Robert Fisher of Nebraska, and by the way, I don't think this is Bobby Fisher, the famous uh, chess player. Uh, you don't know that. Well, Could be. Robert, plus also he spells Fisher differently. Oh, well, so that, that unless he's help. in the witness protection program. Yeah, retired to Montana, changed his name, yeah. So he's in Nebraska. He puts a coin in a soda machine. I mean, when you want a Dr. Pepper, you want a Dr. Pepper. Yeah, sure. And he claims an electric shock passed through his body exiting through his genitals. I was 100% sure he was going to angrily push the thing and be crushed by the... That's another good case. Yeah, I, I mean, that's the, that's why you see the, the machines in cages, so you can't shake them and all that, but now here, this guy was shocked. Here he survived. Uh, the gigantic Coke machine didn't fall on him and crush him to death. He was just shocked. Uh, he and his wife sue over their ruined sex life. Okay, wait, how does he... He says, I, don't, I, I, I haven't been electrocuted well, I, if I had been, I'd be dead because that's what electrocute means. But I haven't been electrified. I've been shocked with electricity in okay. many years. Uh, years ago, I did put my finger in a socket when I was a child, but I don't really remember very well. When he the says, body forgets pain. Yeah. When he says the electricity exited through his genitals. Yeah, what are the odds? I mean, they could have exited through his little toe on his right, right. foot, through the, his cow lick on top of his head. But no, the electricity chooses a much more sensitive part of the body. As, as I understand electricity, it flows through a circuit. And your body can be a circuit where it enters your body. And then, for example, a very common way that it enters and exits your body is it runs up one arm because you've touched something. And mm -hmm. then across your chest, which is very dangerous because your heart is in your chest. And then out the other arm in order to reach something else you're touching that is grounded, that goes you know, to ground and therefore uh, uh, the electricity so seeks that out. Really, the jury needed Isaac Newton as its foreman to yeah. try to figure out the science. Was his penis grounded? Was it? Was there a wire hanging off it that was touching the earth? Was it so long that it rested on the floor? These are interesting questions. Um, so how could it have entered his hand and exited his genitals, sir? Okay, so uh, does that inspire your answer? Oh, my God. Uh, you have to decide whether plaintiff Robert Fisher won or lost his suit against Big Coke. I think he should have lost because the whole exited through the genitals thing is so unbelievable. But I think anybody who says the word genitals in court kind of instantly wins. So I'm going to go with uh, Mr. Fisher wins. You're right. He won $325,000. Holy now, crap. Somebody shocked my genitals. Here's the P.S. His <laughs> wife, because you remember the facts, he and his wife both sued over their ruined sex life. Loss of consortium. Right. 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 He won $325,000. She won $35,000. Damn. What a burn Does on that sex mean life. the jury felt she enjoyed sex one-tenth as much as Bobby Fisher? Yeah. Is that sort of the standard marital ratio? That's tragic. That's, I don't know. I don't know if they had enough testimony on that. He he should have he should have testified. You know, maybe the jury decided that she could still enjoy sexual activity without the use of her husband's penis specifically. Which, hey, man, you know, maybe maybe they're right. No more Mountain Dew for them. <laughs> 
Good job, Connor. Your batting average is even higher than it was before. Yes. And, uh, we, and we got uh, to talk about genitals. We sure did. Everybody should have a wonderful week, and we'll talk to you again on Too Many Lawyers. <laughs>